You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of More Than This. Dave flying solo today from the hosting chair. I'm excited. I was just talking with our guest pre-show. We have Dr. Julia Sadusky on today. I'll give her a proper intro in a minute here. But I was telling her, sometimes I have people that I really want to talk to, and I'm not sure what I want to talk to them about. And then there are conversations I'm dying to have, and I'm like, who do I have the conversation with? Julia fits into the ladder here, where I'm like, I've been dying to have this conversation for a long time. And Julia and I had the, uh, I had the pleasure, I won't speak for her, of meeting her in person. She came to speak at my church here in the Columbus, Ohio area, and just had a really nice conversation at a little after party. It was fun, and she agreed to come on and have this conversation with me. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, this will not come as a surprise because you know I'm interested in identity work and construction and all of the modern facets thereof. So uh, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, there's been a lot of conversation online, some hand-wringing, some triumphant about gender and sexual identity. And I've been a bit amused as a therapist exactly what the of it all as I sit here and I, I think about how people construct a sense of self, especially young adults, emerging adults, I think it's a hard landscape. I'll we'll welcome Julia here in a minute because I want to hear what she says because she works so much in this area. But I've tried to think a lot about healthy identity, not just sort of aspects of identity. And one of the big questions I have regarding healthy identity is what role does our gender and sexuality have? in an overall healthy identity? Where does it sort of fit? What sort of contours and preeminence should it take? So those are big questions. But I thought, you know, let's take a stab at it. That's a lot what we do on this show. There's, there's never bows at the end that we tie things up with, not neat and tidy. And I see Julia nodding her head already is like, yeah, that's probably going to be the case. So Julia, you're not bringing any bows with you today to tie things up with? No, I never do. I often remind people that if they're expecting that, they will be very disappointed. Julia, I'm going to quote you to you, which is annoying, I know, but I'm going to give you a little ramp up. I'm reading from your your own description. So uh, you're an author, speaker, licensed psychologist, and you currently work in Littleton, Colorado. I think you recently began Lux Counseling and Consulting. And you do a wide range of therapies there uh, for couples, group therapy, and you do consultation as well. And I know you work a lot in the area of sexuality and gender. So welcome on. I'd love to hear a little bit from you how you sort of came to this area of gender and sexuality, what drew you to it, and what sort of keeps you in the work? Good question. Uh, yeah, it's good to be with you, David. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast here. Um how did I get involved with this in the first place? So I, um, you know, pretty early in high school, college, probably like many people listening, had several people I, I loved uh, disclose that they were um, gay or lesbian or attracted to the same sex, kind of depending on what language they used. And, you know, several of them were were Christians who were trying to figure out what does that mean for me in my life, uh, you know, 
to your topic for today, you know, how important is this area? How salient is this to my overall identity? And does one aspect of my experience kind of root out or negate another? Do I have to choose one? And uh, the very rigid kind of answers they were getting were, yeah, you have to choose one. And as a person who loved them and cared about them, you know, I guess their questions became my own. Um, and so I did a lot of looking into sexual identity in particular, and through that came across Mark Yarhouse's work. And um, I was already planning on going to grad school to become a clinical psychologist. And so in undergrad, it became a real area of interest of mine and then had the opportunity to work with Mark Yarhouse at Regent to study under him, to get supervision by him. Um, and at that point, when I got there, my first year, he came out with understanding gender dysphoria. And, you know, I remember giving a talk at a youth group that first year and somebody asking a question about gender identity and saying to the whole audience, I don't know enough about that to speak to that here. You know, really what I, I know a lot more about is sexual identity. And that was the nature of the talk. And so, wow, what a whirlwind since then, um, several years later, uh, because I ultimately got supervised by Mark in this uh, clinic there at Regent um, right after his book came out. And so it just so happened that a lot of the referrals coming through were gender related. And, um, you know, the people I was meeting with really, I started to care, you know, just, just as much about, um, them and their lives and their stories. And, uh, that became a real passion of mine in writing and speaking and training, um, people in ministry, people in churches like your church. And, um, that's what got me into it. Uh, what keeps me, uh, you know, I think I learned this from, uh, Mark Yarhouse over the years, but there is a sense of, I guess, responsibility or, or stewardship that comes from being in a space that a lot of people are not in. And, and maybe the people who are in are often talking about people in a way that I find to be pretty reductive and pretty dehumanizing. And so I'm grateful to bring in a psychological perspective that I hope to be uh, robust in as I talk about, but also deeply thoughtful and compassionate and balanced. And so what keeps me is knowing that um, God cares about sexual minorities. God cares about gender minorities. And so I want to speak on their behalf to the degree that I'm able and, and ultimately share their voices and elevate their voices in these conversations. Well, that is fantastic. For those of you listening who are not familiar with the name Mark Garhouse or Julia Sadusky, just huge names in Christian scholarship around gender and sexuality. So if you are listening to this and you would sort of echo what Julia has heard in some of these spaces where it's like, I don't even know how to approach this, I would really commend their resources. We'll have some time at the end for Julia to talk about some of the projects she's working on with Mark and on her own, and also some of the things that exist in the field that they've put out that would are really helpful. You know, we both come at these questions uh, as Christians, and we know uh, that can be a pretty big tent these days. And some of the things you alluded to, Julia, also troubled me as well. Some of the reductive ways that some of my brothers and sisters in the faith speak about certain groups as a therapist, but also as a Christian therapist, which is a pedantic game people love to play. You know, is, are you a therapist who's a Christian or a Christian who's a therapist? Maybe we can, you know, take an oblique crack at, at sort of getting at those answers today, but that's sort of in the back. Just know that that's an active conversation in Christian therapy circles, which sort of comes first. 
you know, which is Christian therapist or therapist Christian. But either way, we are both those things. Uh, you coming from a psychological lens, I'm a mental health counselor. And I think some of the things that are going on, I'm also uh, older than you. So I think I'm, I'm already feeling my age, I think, when I look at some of these things, because the world is quite different. Uh, identity-wise than when I was growing up. And it doesn't seem that long ago to me. I'm in my mid-40s now. And what it meant for someone to be in the LGBTQ community when I was growing up is much different than it is now. Uh, as is our overall approach to understanding identity, I think it has shifted somewhat. So as we think about getting into some of the questions that are driving the conversation today, I just want to get sort of a lay of the land. So you know, as you listen to these, there may be some distinctions in here that you think are not fair. So please let me know. But when you work with young adults that identify as LGBTQ, how have you seen folks in that population integrating gender identity and sexual orientation into their overall sense of identity? I'm, I'm curious if there's any unique ways that you find people in the LGBTQ community doing that. Is it different from those who are not outside of that community? similar. I'm curious how those folks are using and integrating gender identity and sexual orientation into their overall sense of who they are. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think my answer is probably a little bit imprecise in the sense that there's so much diversity, right, within people who are um, exploring sexuality, exploring gender identity, right, which even they themselves are distinct constructs and don't always overlap. And so you, know, you have one person who maybe is exclusively attracted to the same sex um, and they have questions around gender identity. You know, there's also people who don't know yet their sexual orientation. They're not really sure about that because they are actively exploring gender identity. And so one feels like it precedes the other where I have to figure out gender identity questions that I'm having before I can kind of navigate the terrain of relationship and romance and intimacy. And I see that a lot, actually, where people can hyper focus on, okay, so tell me who you're attracted to or what's your sexual identity to teens and parents often will kind of badger ask, well, tell me how this works. And um, the teens can can look up and say, I don't know. I honestly don't know. And so I think that's a piece of it is there can feel like you're kind of gradually building a sense of self out of actively wrestling with these questions. Um, I, you know, I don't know that I want to say that there's something altogether different about the identity development of LGBT people. Um, although I think there are nuances there and questions that they are kind of required to ask sooner and actively, you know, think through in a way that I haven't seen as much with my heterosexual and cisgender clients where things are kind of taken for granted with many of the teens that I work with who are not sexual and gender minorities. And they don't feel as much of a sense that I have to kind of explain myself. And so I think when I see the the challenges that come up for sexual and gender minorities, especially youth, it's really in the sense that they've got this added layer that they're actively wrestling with while they also have to go to school and they also have to do the dishes at home and they also, you know, have extracurricular activities. And so I think you can see some of the added layers of stress that come and then a sense of 
expectation socially that they are asking these questions. And maybe that's to your point, how have things shifted? I think the focus on sexual and gender identity, which I think can be an asset in some ways for the people who we're talking about today, um, can also be a challenge and a burden um, in, in the adolescent years to really figure this out. And that's some of the work I do with youth is really giving them permission to be on a journey, uh, to not see Erickson as very black and white, that you've got to figure out, you know, who am I, that question when you turn 18, um, but to help them understand that they are actively exploring this and, and I want to do so without having a fixed outcome for them in my mind of this is where you have to end up, um, you know, in, in media, in culture, in our churches. I don't know that we always do a great job at accompanying people uh, in a phase of life. In fact, I think sometimes we force foreclosure on identity labels because we're constantly asking them questions of tell me who you are, tell me who you are. And that can take on, yeah, a lot of layers for people who also have a lot else going on. What a good response. And just to your initial point, I often find that it's funny, some of the groupings that we, we sort of put together, I, I think of some of my friends from Africa who they're called African and they're like, well, Africa is so diverse. Like that's a whole continent. It's not like one thing, like, you know, same with LGBT, like it's not just one thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, so just even breaking that down and understanding that there is a lot of fluidity and dynamic differences and where people sit within this community, right? Relative mm-hmm. to one another. I love what you said though, to me, I'll take this back to a geeky place. So I think of variable-based research where you have a lot of like, if you think of identity as a dependent variable, and then you have a lot of explanatory variables that you're using to kind of predict, I feel like there's a proliferation of variables that young adults and you know kids in high school, teens, like are getting pushed on them a lot sooner, where there's a lot more things that sort of are trying to explain who they are. I don't know if that's a fair thing, but I feel like you're like what you're saying. There's a developmental issue here too, where I feel like a lot of the things that young people are asked to take on are not really fully appropriate to their developmental stage. Like it's it's almost like they're not quite equipped for some of the things that society's asking of them or parents are asking quite yet. It's a lot to wrestle with. I think. What do you think about some of that of the timing? You mentioned Erickson and foreclosure and identity which if anybody studied Eric Erickson out there, you might be dusting off Psych 101 and be like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that guy. Uh, sure. he, was, he was an interesting chap. But what do you, what do you think about some of the, the developmental potential mismatches of the questions we're asking and when we're asking people to answer them? You know, that, that's such a great point. I mean, I, I think it's a common fear uh, for many people, for many people that I work with, especially you know, parents, loved ones, teachers, um, people in ministry is, are we kind of demanding and, and putting enormous pressure on young people where developmentally they're not in a position to respond in a, in a kind of thoughtful, robust way? I mean, this is where a lot of the debate comes in today around certain interventions around uh, gender dysphoria, for instance, things like puberty blockers, things like hormones and, you know, how do people think about that? How do people think about a person's developmental capacity for different pieces of this conversation? And, you know, it's such an interesting question because I think for the, the, I'm thinking of the kiddos that I've met with, with gender dysphoria, um, 
whether they're developmentally ready for those questions they are asking them kind of internally, it's kind of spilling out from inside, you know, I'm having dreams where a a natal male is having dreams where they're female, you know, and they're, they're six. And so developmentally ready or not, they have to reckon with that. What does that mean? What is that telling me? Um, and yet they, they benefit from really robust scaffolding, right. To ask those questions because they're a, a young child. Right. And I think where, where we can struggle as a community for people is in the absence of adequate models in the family, in the home, in the school, in the church that are actively weighing in and speaking in, you know, we can be critical of where a young person turns. Oh, you shouldn't go to social media. You shouldn't go to peers, but in the absence of other resourcing, where would they go? Where would I go? And so I think sometimes I flip that question to a, a, uh, opportunity for responsibility taking on people in positions of authority, parents, teachers is okay. So if you have concern about what's developmentally appropriate for your child, what level of responsibility are you going to take for becoming educated and, and kind of knowledgeable in this space so that you can help scaffold as opposed to being critical of who's weighing in and saying, oh, they're not ready for that. And then not having an alternative pathway for people to step into. Um, I think the other thing I'll say there is, you know, I I think there is certainly in our culture today, a marked overexposure to sexual content, to pornography from a young age. I think those ages just keep getting younger and younger. And I think that is not without consequence as far as how that complicates processes of identity development and and, uh, development of intimacy over time in children. And so I think there is a good conversation to be had there in general. You know, I'm not even on um, sexual and gender minority experiences, but in general around exposure to sexual content from a young age and are children equipped to make sense of that. And again, if we're saying they're not, what responsibility do parents and teachers and educators have in stepping in there in a mature way? If you talk to my wife, you know that I go off on bunny trails. Like she will tell you, like I, one thing connects to another. I'm a very associative thinker, but this kind of reminds me of something. And I'm sure a lot of your peers have, you've seen go through this too, but the idea of maybe spiritual deconstruction, I've seen a lot Mm -hmm. of parents go through that. And a lot of things have been changing for parents too. And I think there's a lot of, you know, how, what do we do with our kids now with spirituality? How do we model our religious and spiritual life because we are deconstructing and we want something different? Although we had the benefit of being raised with clear examples, we have made a departure. So we're seeing a generation, maybe whose parents have sort of had the benefit, maybe they don't feel like it was a benefit, but they were raised with some like a solid overview of like of a Christian tradition that had answers. Maybe they pushed back on some of those answers. Maybe didn't like some of them that they've had to work through. But then every time a generation comes along underneath that, it doesn't have the benefit of that to sort of work back from, you know, to sort of to depart from. This happened with the sexual revolution, right? Gen X was, uh, we were born and, you know, we still had a little bit of the benefit of somebody having this sort of like meta narrative that they could sort of draw identity from where, they didn't have some of the questions felt already answered, like you were talking about when you said some of your 
heterosexual cisgender clients, like they just feel like they don't have to explore certain things. They, they maybe feel a little more certainty or security in that area of their identity. They don't feel that incumbent pressure. I will also wonder about this just as parents maybe like have had some shifts from what they were raised with, with spirituality and religion. This probably has some things that they've been working through as well. I get a lot of anxiety from parents who either are worried that their kids are going to become such or they're worried that they're going to imprint on them and keep them from becoming their true selves. And it seems like just this is a long way around the barn to get to the horses, but I agree with you that that middle space where they have exemplars, where there's not fear or anxiety dictating from a parent perspective is really hard. I think these conversations are hard to have because there's been so much shift in the way parents of young, young kids are, have thought about things in their lifetime. What kinds of things do you find yourself uh, talking with parents about when it comes to these issues? Well, you know, parents are in a tough spot in our world today. I mean, with the level of uh, busyness and schedules, the kind of lack of societal structure and, and support for families that I see a lot, um, there's just not a lot of time unless you make it and carve it out and life happens so fast. And then we have this pandemic that we're in and, you know, it just it depletes and depletes and puts pressure on, on family systems across the board. And so I think a lot of times anyway, parents would feel like they're kind of on their back foot here. Um, but all the more when, that when they're depleted or um, feeling that they, their hands are tied a little bit. I mean, I think a lot of times I talk with parents who feel trapped and feel stuck and are coming to terms with the fact that they didn't receive what they needed to have a robust sense of how do I talk with my kids about sex? How do I talk with my kids about their bodies? How do I talk with my kids? You know, if I have a history of trauma, if I've survived something really painful in that area, or if simply in my home, we didn't talk about it. I didn't see my parents uh, kiss. I didn't hear, um, conversations around intimacy very often. And so feeling like we simultaneously have a culture where sex and sexuality and gender are kind of common to be talked about, shown on TV, we also still don't know how to talk about them. <laughs> and so I think with parents, I do a lot of teaching them about how do you talk in a dispassionate, curious, open way um, where you get to actually have a place at the table? Um, because kids and teens, what I love about my work with teens is they call it how it is. They can tell if they if they pick up on, you know, my nerves or somebody else's nerves or somebody else's defensiveness, they'll call you right out. And there's a benefit to that, but a, a challenge for parents who feel like they are kind of in the game and they, and they're still trying to read the instructions manual. Um, so that's one of the things I talk about is how do you in a developmental way work with uh, your children or, around things that they're being exposed to all the time and things they're thinking about uh, many of them. And then the other piece is who do parents have as supports? Because what I've been struck by over the years in my work in LGBT studies is that you know, thankfully, we have increasing resourcing for LGBT people, um, both within the church and outside. We need more, but we have increasing resourcing there. Uh, for parents, they're in a pretty tough spot because I think in the broader culture, parents um, have been seen, especially Christian parents, people of faith, 
as uh, the person to not be trusted. And again, I think there's validity to some of the reasons for that because of the ways some parents have responded in, in really rejecting ways. And yet I work with a lot of parents who are, who are not wanting to do that. And that's not their heart. They're trying to figure out how do we respond in a loving, caring, um, thoughtful parental way. And yet they get kind of caricatured in the broader culture. And then in the church, they, don't feel or see that there's spaces where they can be open and honest about the pain of their own experience or the questions they're wrestling with. And so all of that emotional pain can come out sideways uh, in how they interact with their child. And so I try to help parents see when that's happening and say, who can you talk to? Who are your supports? How are you getting resourcing? You know, are you going to prioritize that? Because if you don't, My fear and what I've seen many times is your emotions come out sideways on your child and they receive the brunt of everything that you haven't processed as far as the fears and the anxieties um, that you carry into these conversations. That is really good. Just addressing the overwhelm of parents and, you know, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, you talked about what keeps you in your work. I'm sure that's something that that's probably really engaging and, and, and hard for you as well, because you can't be a resource to everybody. One of the, the good things that you've done is, is you've taken to writing books and you speak like, so you, tr- you, you try to do more. I know that sometimes even doing individual or group therapy, you want to reach more people, right? It's always, there's always a limitation. And as your move for equity and justice and just, you have a burden like, boy, I'm really glad that you're able to do works that work that, you know, can hit more people at a time, but it's hard to find resources, especially personal ones. It's, it's different to read a book than it is mm-hmm. to talk with, you know, a trusted spiritual friend or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone in ministry or a therapist or another parent in your community that you look up to. Uh, those resources seem to be few and far between. So I love what you said about that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to pivot slightly to get back on the, the topic of identity a little bit more. I think a lot about parts versus holes when I think about identity. So uh, I'll, I'll frame it that way. And i I come at this, um, I think anybody who's been on social media has heard, heard outcries over the concepts of intersectionality, critical race theory, a lot of things that uh, I think there's a lot of, of misinformation about. But the idea of intersectionality uh, comes back to me this, in this way of thinking of parts versus wholes and how we understand who we are, creating mm-hmm. a coherent sense of identity. So for people in the audience, I'll do a, a or job here of sort of defining intersectionality as I understand it. I think like a lot of things in our society, society it's moved from a descriptive uh, mechanism to an evaluative one. As I understand the origin of intersectionality, it was from legal scholarship and the idea that when you sit at the intersection of different identities, uh, maybe gender, race uh, was particularly under the microscope right away, there were some legal scholars at Harvard Law that said, basically, people have sort of a double whammy experience in court. You know, if you're black versus white, you had, you know, sort of more injurious legal outcomes or legal outcomes. But then if you were also compounding that with being black and a female, you were sitting at the intersection of uh, you know, gender and race and those intersected, your outcomes were poorer still than a black male or a white female. And the idea then is sort of like a lot of identity aspects. Uh, you hear things like identity politics, 
sort of really uh, hiving off and carving off different portions of our realities of our identity. All of these things are very salient, our gender, our sexuality, our race, our religion, our ethnicity. All of these things are, are vital to tell our story. But I think what can happen is they can get sort of lumped into a hierarchy, a societal hierarchy, which has always been true, right? We know, we hear heard a lot about patriarchy and gender and sexuality have always been important in this society, like as far as I know. But I think we have more of an atomistic view, I'll say, where we look at things sort of individually and kind of, I call it identity stacking, where I, I feel like we can sort of look at these different independent variables, as I was talking about, that sort of make up our experience. And we can start to lose the whole for the parts. Does that make sense, Julia? I'm looking at you. You're nodding, you're nodding at me. You're also quizzical. I think you have, I, I know this wasn't the most clear explanation. But I'm curious uh, when you think about looking at people looking at parts of their identity versus understanding themselves as a whole being, and then our faith, our tradition. What does Christianity, as you understand it, and as you practice it, and as you use it as a resource for counseling and figuring out your own way in the world, uh, have to say about this notion of, of who we are as a whole person and who we are and how to account for these individual things. What is the relationship that we have between being a whole person and some of these individual identities? Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. I, I um, It's such a complex, complex question and it's uh, something that I think a lot of people I meet with are actively thinking about is you know, how do I talk about my experience in a, in such a way that I convey things that feel important, feel kind of paramount, feel like they inform a lot of how I live and move in the world, um, in, in a culture and a society and that if you use this word as opposed to that word, then you're somehow telling us this is the whole of who you are. And so I think this is where linguistics merge with what we're talking about as far as identity is can people talk about their experience and use labels in a way that um, does justice to important aspects of experience and identity and, and who I am and how I live and move uh, without it becoming a kind of um I don't know, a reduction of the person to where we talk about a person as if one aspect of their identity is the whole, um, where there's a loss of uniqueness actually in, in the midst of that. And so I think that can happen certainly internally as, as a person, they can see themselves or a part of themselves as defining of personhood in such a way that I think is challenging for them because no, no part of us can kind of perfectly encompass every aspect of who we are. Um, and yet the bind I see many people in is, but can I talk about this? And can I use terms and words and labels that are the common vernacular? You know, I, I think of that in reference to terms like gay, lesbian, bisexual, without in our faith communities, it coming to mean that that person is saying this is the whole of who they are, right? Um, I, I hear this kind of double standard there from people of faith, you know, we don't see your sexual identity or we don't see your gender identity as the most important aspect of who you are. But when you use X, Y, or Z term, <laughs> we have a reaction to that because we take that to mean that you're saying that's more important, say, than your spiritual identity. Um, so I would love for there to be enough space for people to use language and terms and actually speak to why they use that language, right? Right. Uh, in Christian spaces 
and to have a conversation about that where we understand. And I think more often find that their Christianity, their spiritual identity is actually paramount to the interpretive lens they take in sense of self, regardless of, of language used. Um, so that's a little, little way around that. But I, I think the other piece here that you're speaking to is, is just the reality that, you know, when we talk about parts of ourselves, um, I don't know that we do as much in understanding how things all hang together. If we fixate on one part and say, I have to figure out this part and I'm going to pause exploration of all aspects of who I am. So I think of some of the young people I I work with who, you know, video games are life. And when I ask about their hobbies, it's like video games, video games, video games, and come to find out they have talents with music or they have talents with art. And when's the last time they sat down and did that? Well, six years ago. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the trying to spur in them, you know, how do you foster aspects of yourself, your experience that thicken the plot for you around who you are, and then let you feel a more stability in your sense of self as you step into adulthood. So that when people ask, you know, what are your interests and what are the things that impact you? There's more than one thing uh, that is informing who you are and how you live and how you move. You didn't know it. You hit a, a delightful landmine for me in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, all the things that we're talking about here are very individually focused. You know, mm-hmm. you talked about, a, you, you used an expression I'm, I'm going to steal from you. I'm just going to let you know that idea of thickening the plot. Mm-hmm. I like I like that language a lot. However, all of the things that we're talking about here pre, sort of presuppose that an individual is left to their own story and their own devices to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And to me, plots get thicker when characters are embedded in a larger story that transcends them, it's going on around them. And to me, that is a key sharpening point of like, what do I sort of choose as paramount? And mm-hmm. it's not even what aspect, it's what story, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what community am I plugged into? What that they sort of hold as a larger story where you find transcendent meaning? Because this is ultimately identity is about meaning and purpose, right? We're trying to figure out why we're here we are, and it's all derivation, right? We're deriving. Uh, I don't find that we we can derive a lot of self from self. That is one of the, the things that I find is sort of a, a, a postmodern bind. Um, so I, I love what you're saying, and I, I think that we kind of do play fast and loose with the binding agent that sort of brings these parts together. But a lot of that is probably because our, our institutions are weaker, our suspicion of institutions is high. Um, you know, a lot of civic engagement is lower. That, that trope has sort of been beat to death, but I think it still hasn't gotten a lot better since, you know, the zenith of writing about that in the late 90s, early 2000s. You think of Putnam bowling alone and a lot of things that came out in that time. Uh, yeah, there's, there's still there, um, even in the language we're using, a betrayal of that we are not communitarian in the way we do our identity work. And this is one of the things that I think hopefully Christianity can confer at, at its best, right? Where we can confer the larger story where things can sort of fit into instead of having things that feel disparate about us that need to be resolved and integrated, some sort of larger story where they can sort of naturally fit under. I dare say that's not always been our experience, even through some of what you said, because people, like you said, if they use this language, 
are they going to suddenly jump out of the narrative? Can they still fit? You know, can I be, we were talking about Christian therapists, can I be a gay Christian? Can I be a lesbian Christian? Can I be a trans Christian? Can I be whatever it is that those fit together in a way? And there's definitely conversations to be had there, but I think a lot of times we just feel like Christian is just another aspect. It, we've lost the communitarian richness of a, of a story that things can fit into and that we can see by. Right. Well, it's, it's simultaneously, um, you know, in the context of church community, how that message gets conveyed, but also in, in the personal encounter with God, which is often what I see tragically missing in the people who are exploring sexuality and gender within our faith communities is, um, you know, borrowing this from Mark Gerhouse, but, but this idea that the questions or exploration being done around identity precludes you from a relationship with God. And so I've got to figure that out before I can come to the altar, before I can walk in the church. Can I be in the room without having this all sorted out? And that I think speaks powerfully into how God sees and thinks about us as people who are on a journey of knowing him and knowing ourselves and knowing our faith and our beliefs and our values and our sense of meaning and purpose, right? Knowing for what end we are made. And if we have to have that all sorted out in a, in a way that feels similar to everybody else before we can step into our Bible study or into our small group or into our church, that's where I think we lose the larger story because nobody hears it. Or at least they hear the larger story and say, oh, that story doesn't apply to me. I don't fit within that story. God doesn't care about the way my story weaves in with the broader story. Um, and then people will, and, and I'm not exactly critical of them as much as I'm critical of our faith communities, and people will look elsewhere for their story, or they will look internally and kind of develop and foster a story that feels sustainable in the present moment. And so I think we, we fail to appreciate how much postmodern thought has informed, not just outside our church circles, but within them. Uh, to where we we struggle, I think, to lay a solid foundation for the, what that larger story is and the fact that God actually wants everyone within that broader story. He has a plan. I often say to my clients, God's not scrambling for a plan B with you. You know, he actually has a plan A for your life and he cares about your story. And they look at me and say, well, well, I've never really heard that before. Or so you're mean to say, I can like pray about this. I can ask God about this. I can journal to God and share my questions with him. That feels groundbreaking for them. And so I, I think that's where I see the emphasis on the personal then come in is if God doesn't care, if there's not a larger story for me, then why would I spend my life seeking that out? Um, and, 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 that's a real challenge, I think. And, and a point of focus for me is helping people, um, know that if they do want to bring their questions to God, if there's any part of them that is curious about what he might have to say and, you know, my personal belief in him as, as a loving God, a, a merciful God, a, a God who entered in <laughs> and didn't stand off and say, go figure it out, but kind of became incarnate to say, I care so much that I'm going to come here and help with this. Um, you know, trying to convey his presence through my presence in people's lives and seeing that in, in its own way as a way to speak into the larger story he has for them 
no matter where they are in this process. I love a good metaphor or analogy. So I like, I, I want to ring just a little bit more. You've got my, my, everything firing in my brain around this sort of literary idea of plot and story. So I think one of the things that you would, you would say, if you have a very good thick plot as an author, it's really a lot easier then for people in the, in the story to grow and take on nuance and like against the background of that plot. But if you're always, you have a thin plot and you're, you're tempted to revise, you end up rewriting a lot, right? You're just that people I think is, is become intoxicated with the idea of like reinvention, reinvention, but like reinvention and it can become a, a, a sort of felt need to revise like and sort of prove yourself a thin plot. Like you have like a thin identity that sort of needs affirmation and validation and reassessment a lot. And that I think can really shift a lot of anxiety and depression and things and, and vigilance into your, into your psyche, into your soul. So I think it's really interesting uh, what you're talking about, but just the idea that you can grow in a nuanced way, in a thoughtful way, in a, within a thick plot versus having to constantly revise. It can feel intoxicating. It can feel liberating. But I think there's the paradox is that you end up with an inner plot and the character, just that continuity isn't there that, that we really sort of crave a lot of like sort of existential security that comes from that. So I'm already noting the time, Julia. I would love to get your, your comments on that. I have one more question I want to ask. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in this. Uh, this may not be fair, but this is me as a Protestant Christian coming with some uh, pining after uh, the Catholic tradition. I want to ask a little bit about the role of the body and the understanding of the body in modern sexual and gender identities and how people are sort of thinking of the body that you're working with. So that, that could be the anatomy, chromosomes, all of our sort of physical, our experience of being physical beings. I read, I didn't read the full of, uh, you know, the sermons from Pope John Paul II on theology of the body, but I've read some of through West, West, yeah. West uh, some of his work. And we in the Protestant wing of the church don't have as coherent things and rich things, I think, that we say about the body and theology of the body. But I'm curious uh, from what you see people walking in with in terms of their own sort of struggle with identity and trying to figure things out. And then also your understanding as a Catholic Christian like what role does the body sort of currently play? And then what is your uh, vision for what role the body should play in understanding our sexual and gender identities? Mm. Big no small questions here. That's right. Gosh. Um, yeah, I, I so appreciate that question. And I th think you're right. We can't do justice to it all here today, but um, you know, I think we could do a whole conversation on what does uh, at least theology of the body. And for those who aren't familiar, um, Pope John Paul II delivered a series of lectures over the course of years around uh, what is there to be understood about God through the human body and through the human person as embodied. Um, and so I think that, you know, if, if you're curious about that, I think that those texts and the original texts themselves are so rich in in all of us kind of coming to a depth of understanding of in what ways do our body communicate uh, divine realities and point us to who God is and, and who the Trinitarian, Trinitarian life is in, in our world. And um, 
So I think, you know, what came forward out of those texts and those talks was a really high view of, of the body as, um, you know, part and parcel in revealing to us invisible realities. So almost the body as sacrament, uh, the body as uh, communicating divine realities in the human sphere. And so within that, there's an elevation of the body. Um, What he also speaks of, though, is after the fall of humanity, we have a suspicion of our bodies and we have a kind of disconnection, a fundamental disconnection between our embodied experience. So this is where dualism comes in, where it's hard to understand the body-soul unity as a holistic um, approach or in a holistic way, I should say. And so, you know, I, I think we see that. Uh, reflected in our own personal wrestling with um, who am I <laughs> as a body soul unity and and how important does my body feel how um, connected do I feel to my body you know I think we see that globally and then I, I think on a, a societal level um, we live in a kind of postmodern culture a kind of rugged materialistic culture where um, the body can simultaneously become the subject of great change and kind of manipulation to the degree that we would like it to, to work for us. And there is a a real disconnection between the body communicating something, um, even if it does so in really uh, kind of uh, imperfect ways. And so I think for my clients, when I think about people who have gender dysphoria, for instance, I think they actually illustrate um, just how important the body is because of how much distress and pain and, um, difficulty comes in and through the, the human bodies that they have. Um, and so uh, I think what I see boots on the ground is, is more people who don't so much have a low value of the body. Although I think we could see that philosophically and metaphysically in our culture today. Um, but people who, who are kind of holding the body with, with, a level of seriousness. And also it becomes and, and has been for many of them for years, a great source of turmoil. And so I see that in the area of gender um, as a, a kind of complex relationship with the body where it's both a reality to be reckoned with and also a source of great pain and um, distress. And then in the area of sexual identity, I think, you know, we kind of carry our desires with us everywhere we go. You know, we can't opt out of them unless we engage in behaviors that are really harmful for us. And so we have desires, we have impulses. And um, what I love about theology of the body is an elevation of impulses and desires as a way to point us to God, as opposed to something that only is ever a threat to our relationship with God. And so seeing our desires as a guide, um, but not the absolute guide. Right. I think that's what would distinguish Christian thought from a, um, atheistic narratives is that, no, our desires are not to be taken as absolute fact, just like our feelings are not to be taken as absolute fact, um, but do have something to say. I say they're data points, you know, they're not facts, they're data points. And if we can't approach them and be curious about what they're communicating to us, you know, we're left in a real bind in, in learning more about who we are. My goodness, I'm like, I I know I say this at the end of every good conversation I have on here, but I could just keep going. I so because sure. we even got to talk on this level. We did a little uh, cocktail party chat where we were like yelling over, you know, people in the same room. Uh, it's been lovely. I, I I 
I don't want to overstep my time boundary here with you. We're running out of time, but I wanted to let you uh, just let people know, uh, could let us know where we can sort of find your work, some things that you would commend that, you're, that you've worked on in the past, working on now. Tell us a little bit about how we can catch up with you online uh, for your writing. And maybe if somebody wanted to have you uh, come speak to their church group or something like that, how can we uh, get in touch with you and find out what you're up to? So the best way to do it is through my website. So first and last name, uh, com, And I bet you can put that in the show notes. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I have a, a professional Facebook page that I can put out events or interviews I've done or um, things like this podcast and upcoming resources available. Um, you know, the first book that I co-authored with Mark Your House was um, Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth, and that's available on um, Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Um, we do have a second book coming out in February through InterVarsity Press uh, Academic, and that will be for therapists, sexual or gender identity in therapy um, is that book about how do you approach gender in a, in a robust way in therapy, especially for people of faith. You know, we've contributed to other things in the past and hope to have other projects coming up. Um, I've done some writing for the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which is Preston Sprinkles. Um, and I would definitely commend uh, resourcing through Revoice, which is a Christian conference for LGBT people of faith and their loved ones. And um, that's been a really wonderful resource that really allows people to get connected to other resources, both in the form of small groups, community of um, people of faith navigating this terrain, uh, but also books and uh, other uh, wonderful options as far as how do we uh, thicken the plot, as we mentioned earlier. Oh my goodness. Oh, Julia, thank you so much. So much language to play with. Uh, so many things that I'll be thinking about. And thank you for bringing both those resources forward. I'll be looking for uh, the therapist manual when it comes out that book um, as a counselor educator will be very exciting for my students. So um, yes, again, this could have gone a lot longer. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. I hope you get to speak again. Me too. Thanks, David. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story.